Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Marlin's Corner. Marlin's Corner, the pop culture podcast that gives you things to talk about at work, around the water cooler in under 30 minutes. Uh, Shout out to one of our listeners, Ryan, who gave me some awesome feedback in terms of like wanting to get just some blatant things to bring up when talking about the shows we review. So in giving two of the reviews today, I'm going to give you just some, I think, hot goss or some some fun topics you can bring up when talking about the show. So let's just start things off with one of my, you know, really favorite documentaries about sports. Not a huge sports fan, but I do love sports documentaries. Untold, uh, volume two on Netflix. It is a four-week docu-series uh, that chooses to kind of talk about the inside tips or inside no regarding sports, you know, from basketball, football, sailing, streetball, what have you. It's going to give you the inside look on these things. And one of the episodes in particular we're going to focus on today is the rise and fall of And One. Now, when talking about this show, on top of the surface, first thing, it's important to note that if you don't remember And One, that's just because you happen to miss this fad. It and one appeared and disappeared within a generation. It was quite fascinating how quickly and one was popular and then it was gone for forever. When talking about the show, it's important to bring up the fact that when and one popped up, it was specifically about streetball and streetball culture. Um, when you go to your local park and you see folks out there playing ball and living life, you know, really living that ball is life lifestyle and one was basically if those individuals got week-to-week contracts and were put on tv and one was also created as a way to almost challenge nike in the nba and what i mean by that is when you talk about the show is that and one had a very popular merchandise line from shoes to sportswear and it also had a very popular tv following so those are the two things that are important to talk about they had merch and they had tv They were seeking to, I guess, using uh, some vernacular from nowadays, they were seeking to disrupt the culture around basketball. So that's something you can bring up on top of the surface. And below the surface with this particular documentary, it chose to bring up a lot of the unknown things about the and one players. Some of those streetball legends at the time were the professor, hot sauce is a big one and skip to my Lou. And, you know, What's really fascinating about this documentary below the surface is that these players had week to week contracts. If you, you know, grew up in the 90s, you recall there was always this really cool and one schedule. They were really they were on a tour. They would go to a, a public park and they would play. And what I didn't realize and what's fascinating about and one is that you would they would go and play. And if, you know, a particular team or particular player happened to lose, they would be replaced, meaning you're, if you you know won a game in one town, you lost a game in another town, you didn't get to stay on tour with them. Your journey with that team ended. And the player that won got to take your spot and get a new contract. And by contract, I mean, they got a chance to get a paycheck. And so they traveled from every different city, uh, different state and played basketball. And everyone who was a streetball player who maybe had dreams of going to the NBA and didn't make it, well, they had this secondary opportunity to still be as big. And I know you're thinking like, oh, like, I mean, the NBA is huge. In what way does and one even measure up to it? Well, 
and one when it first came out definitely was living those uh, VHS tape type uh, type days. And if you hear the word VHS, VHS and you're confused, it was just rectangular black object that you plugged into a VCR, you hit play and it was, you had to rewind it. It's a, it's a whole thing. Well, anyway, they would record these street games and eventually these uh, three white men who, you know, went to college and enjoyed playing basketball on the side, uh, used their degrees to really um, market street ball to executives to potentially, hey, take a look at this. It's an untapped market that people don't really, you know, advertise to. And it has the potential to, cha-ching, cha-ching, make that money. So streetball went from just being, you know, on the, you know, on the blacktop, on the basketball court, to being on a VHS tape, to eventually being on shows like ESPN. And that's where we saw streetball culture basically grow. From their introduction to these newer shows, you saw the players, Professor Hot Sauce, become household names. You saw them on commercials. You saw them signing shoes at the Reebok stores or at the Foot Lockers. And for the first time ever, Nike had a challenger. And that is, I think, the real important piece about the story of Anne One is that it was seeking to step to Nike and directly challenge their hold on the culture. Now, you think of Nike, you think of their spokesperson, Michael Jordan, and you know that Nike absolutely has a grip on basketball. And of course, there are, you know, subsequent players in the game, but at that time, it was just Nike. And One was very new very little. And surprisingly, because they were marketing towards streetball culture, they were directly challenging them. And one shoes were selling. I remember being a kid in high school and middle school and kids were buying and one shoes. They were buying and one jerseys and one basketball shorts and one socks. You know, it was directly challenging Nike and that absolutely was a money-making machine. The three white men who started Anwan were raking in money hand over fist. And what's sad is that this did not reflect in the paychecks the players were getting. The players who, mind you, were still were still touring, were still playing, were appearing on all these shows, signing all these autographs, doing all this face-to-face work while these other three white men were just kind of observing and cashing that in. They didn't see dividends of that. The show also goes into the fact that a lot of these men were fighting with one another because with the NBA, you kind of know that, hey, like, you know, Kyrie's salary is going to be very different from, you know, a first year NBA player. We absolutely understand that. But with and one, it was who who do people like more? And based off of that, that person got paid more. Didn't matter, you know, if maybe you were better than them, if they were more marketable, that was obviously the person that, you know, you would go with. And what sucks is that this would change. One night the professor could be hot and the next night it could be skipped to my loo and those paychecks would fluctuate based on audience, you know, enjoyment. And there really wasn't a very clear contract. So a lot of players would argue, would get into fights about their paycheck. Meanwhile, uh, the individuals uh, who were making the most money were just enjoying that rise to fame. And again, it's important to remember, they're going up against Nike and this could only last so long. And of course, eventually Nike pivots their plan uh, that they were initially doing and they start marketing their shoe line 
towards street ballers with a iconic commercial that starts with the basketball dribbling and all you hear during the commercial is just the basketball dribbling, shoe squeaking. If it sounds familiar, you know what I'm talking about. That commercial changed the game and spelled the end for and one. And at the end of the day, the three white men who started the company left with a bag in hand. They were done with it. It didn't work out, but they left with millions while these young players from the hood who were looking and dreaming of this being their livelihood, this being their career, the cash flow stopped. And when the cash flow stops, well, they just go home. I think out of all of them, Skip to My Lou had a very short NBA career, but the rest of them returned home to look for other jobs. With and one dissolving, there was nothing left for them to do. This whole documentary, I think, is an important documentary to look at because, again, you see these white men benefiting from these young Black players who were out there with their blood, sweat, and tears making maybe, you know, two grand uh, at the end of the week, and then it changes to one grand, but they're you know they're fighting for small scrapes of the barrel, whereas the three white men are raking in huge deals off the marketing, off the events, and one played at Madison Square Garden. They played at big stadiums, big arenas, and they never saw the price tag that they should have gotten for selling out those venues. They didn't get that. And in some ways, it reminds you of the NCAA, where, you know, again, you have these universities that are, for a time, were just making tons of money off these young uh, athletes, you know, off their images, their likeness. Uh, they were doing the uh, college football packs for uh, Madden sports. These young players were making any of that money until, you know, Last year when they decided, hey, it's unfair, and they rallied to get that money finally in their pockets. And even now they're still negotiating what does it mean, you know, state by state, but they're at least still going to receive the cash that they deserve for basically putting their university on the map. These are players who are, you know, getting concussions in football, uh, that are, you know, getting hurt playing lacrosse or running. These are players who deserve a piece of the pie that the university is taking from them. And unfortunately for Anne, one with it being so short-lived, the players never got the opportunity to leverage their star power for equal pay. They didn't get a chance to do that because of how quick and one rose and how quick it fell. So in talking about this show, you can definitely pivot it towards a discussion around equitability, uh, around the individuals that were in charge of and one and the young men that they were taking advantage of. And when it was all said and done and, you know, they sold off the company and they fired everyone, the people that stood, that had the most to gain were the three individuals who weren't on the court, who weren't sleeping in roach motels, who weren't driving in a beat-up bus everywhere, the people that lost the most were these young men who were forced in these conditions. Again, they were doing it for the love of the game, but they also were doing it with this hope and this dream of stardom, this hope and this dream of, hey, the NBA didn't work out for me, but maybe this can. And that dream quickly uh, just was snuffed out once it all was said and done.
And those are some things you can talk about when, you know, discussing and told and definitely watch it. There are a lot of things that go on in this amazing documentary that are important to look at and, and think about in regards to just how easy it is to take advantage of individuals who have so much talent. Uh, and it's a very sad and unfortunate story. But shout out to them for really making a generation uh, excited about basketball again. Really, you know, highlight that, hey, street culture, street ball culture is impactful and calls the direct change. And I mean, even looking at the NBA now and looking at ESPN, they're often, you know, additional slam dunk tournaments, additional street ball tournaments. They're, you know, pivoting towards uh, the niche that and one kind of highlighted. But it's important to remember that the people that started that, the people that were there, you know, unfortunately didn't get the most out of it. So shout out to, of course, the Professor Hot Sauce, Skip Tamalu, the main event, and Shane, the dribbling machine, and many more who put uh, Streetball on the map. Shout out to y'all. And next up, and, you know, our slot of things to talk about, we're going to talk about She-Hulk uh, and ways in which you can talk about She-Hulk that are going to really kind of make you stand out in a conversation. What's important to remember about She-Hulk is on top of the surface, you can definitely say, hey, She-Hulk actually um, was the last character created by Stan Lee uh, before, you know, he went on a little hiatus. He, of course, came back, but this was his last character he created before his hiatus. Um, so that's an important thing to talk about. Uh, secondly, you can talk about that's also on the surface is the fact that the creation of She-Hulk had very much to do with the success of the Hulk and the Bionic Woman. Now, when I say the Hulk, I mean the Hulk TV show that came out in the 70s and in the 80s. Huge show. The show did numbers. I mean, Lou Ferrigno really put the Hulk on the map and really, it was a popular comic book, but with Lou Ferrigno on that TV screen doing the show, it really levitated the character to a different a different height, quite honest. And with the popularity of this show, the Marvel Studios was concerned that other shows might try to do a female version of the Hulk. And when they thought about that, they thought about shows like The Six Million Dollar Man was popular, and all of a sudden, the bionic woman appeared. So they're thinking, oh, The Six Million Dollar Man was popular. They made a show, and they just kind of gender swapped it. Now it's a woman. If we want to protect or make money, off of, you know, the Hulk, we have to do a female counterpart as a way to, of course, make sure we make money in case someone decides to do uh, a female version of it. We want to make sure that we own those rights. So She-Hulk came up because of that on the surface. Below the surface, it's important to know that She-Hulk from that, of course, moment transformed into a different character entirely. She went from being just a gender-swapped Hulk to being a female icon about an independent woman who holds a high-power job, who holds her sexuality in a way that is, that is her own, um, who is capable of her own adventures and capable of her own storylines. She transformed from that in a huge, huge way. And so when we look at She-Hulk as a show, it definitely, you know, it's surprising to hear a lot of the feedback regarding the show happens to be about, oh, the show seems to be anti-man um, when it's just about this really, you know, powerful and confident woman. And hey, let's just dive into some below the surface things to bring up. So when we look at the show as a whole, it's 
really hard not to see that the narrative structure of the show almost a little bit resembles the Marvelous Miss Maisel. Where on that show, we also have a female protagonist who often will break in the middle of dialogue to address the audience. In this show, Jennifer Walters, you know, will do the exact same thing. She'll be in a moment, she'll turn, she'll talk specifically to you, the audience, in a way that's very reminiscent to Marvelous Miss Maisel or her MCU counterpart, Deadpool. So as we watch the show, we get a chance to see this narrative tool basically be be utilized to express comical moments, you know, moments of like, I can't believe they said that. Why do I have to do this? So it's a very cool tool to see. And one that, again, we haven't really seen, you know, outside of Deadpool. It's cool to see it on this show. And I think it also casts the show in a different light. With WandaVision, we saw a little bit of it, but it wasn't a show that was giving an homage type vibe. This show is definitely giving the vibe that, hey, we're going to be a little goofy. We're going to give ourselves permission to be goofy. And hey, I think that's an important thing to do. We, of course, love our Winter Soldiers. Uh, we love our Black Panthers. But it's also cool to just have a fun show that's just like, hey, we're going to have some laughs. It's going to be great. That's absolutely a-okay. And what's also fascinating is that when we aren't having, you know, all this fun stuff, there is a really cool idea here. Jennifer Walters is a lawyer and she's going to be representing superheroes or the super empowered. What's interesting about that is how do you interpret the law in regards to a superhero? We know that everyone is, you know, owed due process. We know that, you know, people have to be read the rights. But when you look at superheroes as a genre, they often skip so many of those steps. You know, they, if you look at Batman, he beats people up, he coerces them to tell him the truth, and then he restrains them and he hangs them upside down for the, the cops to get them. Can you actually take this person to trial based on that? Probably not. You probably can't take him to court. You have a man who, yes, definitely committed a crime, but now you have the issue of he was beat up uh, and he was uh, restrained against his will uh, and just tied to something. That's difficult to bring the court of like, hey, yeah, he's guilty. But like this man's rights were absolutely just like stepped all over. So it's very interesting to see how the show is going to choose to address a lot of these things. And we know that her first um, case happens to be Emil Blonsky because, of course, we got to tie in the fact that, you know, hey, the Hulk and Abomination had this whole, you know, vendetta. And he also appeared in Shang-Chi. But it's also fascinating to see if they are going to really talk about our superheroes in the right doing what they do. So below the surface, that's definitely a very interesting topic to kind of talk about. Because even if we go to like the Captain Americas, you still have someone who is straight up beating someone up. And we definitely know that there's been, you know, they've attempted to be, you know, government contracted and with the Sokovia Accords, but it's very fascinating to see if they're going to, you know, allow Jennifer Walters to either defend the ways in which superheroes arrest and detain the bad guys, or if she's going to wind up on the opposite side for a bit and be like, hey, you can't do that to this person. Yes, they broke the law, but you also broke the law and that negates this entire trial. So 
we're definitely looking forward to seeing how that continues, how that flushes out. And I, for one, am hoping that they, you know, dive into that. And to slightly pivot, you know, to kind of have more things to talk about, I think it's also important to acknowledge that shows like this that have a female protagonist are often targets uh, of individuals who feel like this is this show is designed to speak down to men that this show is designed to emasculate men. And the reason why it's important to talk about it is that a lot of these shows that have male leads, that really isn't the case. They can talk bad about women, they can be womanizers, and there really isn't much being said about it. But the moment you have a woman on a show who is comfortable by saying like, hey, you know, as a woman, you know, there are things that offend me. You know, I, I get catcalled. Uh, it's it's surprising, well, not surprising, but it's uh, interesting to see that there are folks on the internet who choose to see this as, oh, I can't believe uh, that they're advertising this anti-male show when in fact it's uh, a woman lead and their, and their perspective is different from yours. And instead of embracing that storytelling and looking forward to seeing how they can elaborate on their experiences, there are folks who are very quick to shut down the show who are currently trying to review Bomb It to Hell. Uh, and I really hope that the folks who love it are loud and proud about it so we can keep shows and movies with female protagonists continuing to go because this show thus far is fascinating. And I just love reading all the men who are angry and upset about the show. This woman's so strong and she's independent and we don't need that. And there's no way she could beat up the Hulk. This is all bullshit. And it's like, yo, let's be real here. In this moment, the Hulk is absolutely not going to straight up trying to hurt his cousin, you know? So that's that's fine. And also, let's say she does beat him up. Hey, so what? This version of the Hulk is Smart Hulk. We all know that. Smart Hulk is notoriously weaker. That's okay. Jennifer Walters can be stronger than this version of the Hulk, and the writers give you a reason for that. We need to allow the narrative to play out before we start saying the show has a lean that's anti-male. Uh, and so let's just make sure we're giving the show the full nine episodes it's going to get before we just downvote this project entirely. So if you hear folks out there saying the show is terrible, really ask them to elaborate. And I'm sure you'll see, oh, you just have a problem with a strong woman. The individual who probably doesn't like She-Hulk for these strong female themes is probably the same person that, that doesn't like Korra as the Avatar. So just put that out there. Just put that out there. If someone says, if someone says they don't like She-Hulk, definitely just ask them, what are some things you don't like about it? And see you know, how many examples they give you before they get to the issue of her being a woman. And they're like, oh, okay, I see what your opinion is, and I don't, I don't want that. No, thank you. Not for me. Uh, but folks, with that being said, that is the end of our reviews this week. Uh, definitely shoot me some questions. Uh, I am on Facebook and on Instagram at Marlon's Corner. We appreciate uh, all our reviews, all our questions. Definitely give us some reviews on Spotify so we can be your podcast of the day. I'm gonna be leaving, I'm gonna be letting y'all out of here early, which is fantastic. Twenty, uh, we're, we're probably gonna be under thirty minutes, which is like honestly the goal. Uh, have an amazing day. You're amazing. I appreciate you. Go ahead and spread your shine onto the world, and we'll catch you next time back in the corner on Mullen's Corner. Bye-bye.
This episode of Marlin's Corner was produced in Richmond, California.